into and over Revelation 1, 9 through 20. I want to ask you to pray not only for me each week as I seek to study God's word. I find Revelation tremendously challenging. Would you pray for me that I would understand it and communicate it as the Holy Spirit who wrote it would have me? Pray also for those who are serving in the pulpit ministry in weeks to come. I will be preaching through successive passages in Revelation until we're done with the book of Revelation, as long as that takes us, but there will be intermittent intervals where others will be preaching. On June 5th, we have just secured a friend of mine, Pastor Ali Mati, from an African country, Nigeria. He's been a pastor there for many years, has left that country and come to the United States to study and take a Master's of Divinity at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Well, he's done with his master's, and now he's doing a PhD at the same school down in Louisville, visiting Duluth the last Sunday of May and the first Sunday of June. He will be in this pulpit preaching the Word of God the first Sunday in June. Pastor Ali Mati, I'm very excited to introduce him to you on that day and to hear the Word of God brought to us through a dear brother in Christ. Pastor Ali Mati's testimony, I hope, will be a part of his sharing. Um, I love and admire him tremendously for several reasons, one of which is he and his wife and children have been physically and repeatedly persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. He bears scars on his body, which he will not point out to you, but they will be obvious to see if you have eyes to see. I was thinking of Pastor Ollie during this whole study of Revelation because I know that John, the writer of the book of Revelation, was under tribulation and distress because of persecution. I know he's writing to Christians who were under persecution and distress for the name of Jesus Christ in the first century when John was authoring by the Spirit Revelation. I know that Christians around the world are being increasingly persecuted for their faith. And I know that if we choose, by God's grace, to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, persecution will come in our lives in small ways and sometimes in government-sponsored and larger ways. We have much to learn from someone like Pastor Ali Mati. Would you pray with me? Father God, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by your Holy Spirit, I pray that in the little landing, in the nursery, in all the homes that are watching by live stream, and in this room, you would come and stand present among your lampstand. And that your right hand would reach out to every shoulder in this room and in the hearing of my voice and you would touch that shoulder and you would speak, fear not. And fear would flee from every heart. Fear of judgment, fear of condemnation, fear of the world, fear of the devil, fear of death, they would instantly flee. And in its place, you would give a joyful, deeply rooted, weighty fear of you and fear of grieving or dishonoring or disobeying you in any way. A fear mingled with joy and with hope that says, Christ, you are everything to me. 
you have given your life for me. I am happy to offer my life as a living sacrifice back to you. Create such rock-solid, confident assurance in the hearts of your people today that we, by your grace, are ready to take every risk you call us to in the cause of Christ hereafter until you return. Bless us, I pray now, through this passage, by this passage, in this passage. Speak through it. It is alive and fixed, unchangeable, and yet changing everything it touches. Speak through your living word, I pray, by the Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you have a settled sense of peace? Do you have a settled sense of God's goodness in your life? An assurance that you're going to go to heaven? Assurance that that Christ is yours and you are his? Do you have a sweet, powerful, strong sense of hope in God that you are his and he is yours? In Matthew 16, 18 through 19, Jesus said to Peter and his disciples, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, the rock of your confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is Jesus saying before he dies and rises again 2,000 years ago that I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What we see in Revelation chapter 1 is Jesus actually doing what he said he would do back in Matthew 16. Jesus is on display to John and to us through John's writing and if the Spirit opens our eyes to see the vision of Christ as the one who is actually building his church and he does so by creating tremendous assurance in every heart of every believer. There are common ways especially in America, especially in wealthy countries, especially in the last 50 years or so, that believers have sought to build their assurance. Two common ways are both biblical errors, but you find them constantly welling up in your heart. They're part of my life. I can remember thinking both of these, and they creep back in to the degree that I don't find my mind reoriented by Scripture. Some build their assurance by saying, I remember the day that I prayed to receive Christ. I remember my baptism. I remember when I made a decision, I walked an aisle or signed a card. Right on the face of it, the errors of believing in our own works are never solid footing for our assurance, our confidence in our salvation. Another way, it is, yes, by grace, some say that I've been saved, but now I must do good works in order to stay in God's salvation. Both are errors, both as common as they are, find no footing in Scripture, and in fact are clearly corrected mercifully and lovingly by the truth of God's Word. How does Scripture build assurance? Scripture builds assurance over and over and over again the same way. Many, many times, dozens of examples. I I have three here. But each time, what Scripture does is it points us to the promises and the surety and the sovereignty and the power of Christ to save the people that he has called to himself. The English blaspheming sailor, John Newton, turned pastor and mighty man of God, hymn writer in the 18th century England, was counseling a friend, a dear and beleaguered friend, who did not have assurance of his salvation, though there was a clear trusting in Christ and and, and a heart desiring, yearning, struggling to love and serve Christ, and yet this person seemed to have no 
experience of God's assurance. Newton says to his friend, assurance grows by repeated conflict, by our repeated experimental proof of the Lord's power and goodness to save. When we've been brought very low and helped, sorely wounded and healed, cast down and raised again, having given up all hope and been suddenly snatched from danger and placed in safety, and when these things have been repeated to us and in us a thousand times over, we begin to learn to trust simply to the Word of God and its power. Beyond and against appearances and this trust, when habitual and strong bears the name of assurance, for even assurance has its mounting degrees. I find that to be totally true in my life. I find that to be true as I look to God's Word. I think we have Revelation chapter 1 in front of us to build assurance in your heart today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should read with me Revelation 1 and look carefully and deeply with it uh, together with me and find your assurance rising, the Fahrenheit of your assurance skyrocketing to white-hot proportions because the book of Revelation was written to give assurance to the beleaguered, persecuted, oppressed, and hard heavy press people John was writing to as well as to us. Everything in Revelation 1 is customized to give you this assurance. Everything in Revelation 1 is meant to help you say, even though I'm under persecution, it doesn't mean God has stopped loving me. In fact, he is using it for my good and magnifying his name through me. God help me remain faithful. Scripture uses examples like this. I'll read three of them for you. They're precious ones that came to my mind earlier this week. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. If you're struggling with assurance, that's what I'd say to you right now. Look to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Or Isaiah 45, 22, the famous passage by which Charles Spurgeon, the British preacher, was saved. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Or one of my favorites, Psalm 42, 5 and 6. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Assurance is the confidence that we have in Christ to keep his promises to us, not the confidence we have in ourselves to keep our promises to him. Our past having been saved, our now being saved today, our future certainly shall be saved, are all owing to his promise-keeping sovereign grace. Christ will hold us fast. He promised he would. And here in Revelation 1, he reveals to John how he, the risen Christ, is in everything he is and everything about him and everything he does telling the churches, seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, representing all the churches including us, I'm here for you, I'm walking among you, I'm putting my right hand to touch your shoulder and I'm telling you fear not and I'm giving you the privilege of knowing that I am here and stronger than everything that tries to labor against your faith. In three movements, John unfolds this passage. Here's the the title I've given to all three movements, and I'll show it to you briefly. First, the risen Christ declares prophecy to the church. Second, the risen Christ reveals his equality with God. And third, the risen Christ proclaims gospel glory. 
That's my outline for this passage that Howard just read. Let's look at it and see how each of these three movements builds assurance in the first century readers and in us. Verses 9 through 11, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. What a mercy that the risen Christ, who we'll see in a moment, it's this risen Christ with a trumpet voice, is speaking... And he's speaking in a language John understands such that John in this vision on the Lord's day is hearing mercifully from Christ as he speaks and through John to write a book to send off to these heartbroken and persecuted and beleaguered Christians in these seven churches and to us. Such a mercy that Christ is the prophetic speaker. John calls us his brother. He says, I'm a brother and a fellow worker with you in the tribulation. And the tribulation is all the opposition that comes against believers for their faith in Jesus Christ. It is how the kingdom will be built. Paul said, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom in Acts 18. And that requires then patient endurance. So John says, I know exactly what it's like. Here am I, an old man on an island called Patmos, out in the Aegean Sea, 40 or 50 miles from the rest of the mainland, and by myself, functionally. There might have been a small village on that island. There might have been a cohort of Roman soldiers. There might have been, from time to time, a ship that would come by with supplies. John is in exile, and he's alone. The oldest apostle, all the others have died, and here he remains alone. And He surely must wonder, is the church of Jesus Christ going to continue? How is Christ going to do it? Is he strong enough? Is he big enough? Does he know enough what's going on? Is he wise enough? Is he powerful enough to overcome our enemies? Is he big enough to build his church as he promised he would? John, our brother, in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance that are in Christ. He says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Worship had shifted from Saturday under the Jewish structure, to the Resurrection Sunday, the Lord's Day. This was a monumental shift. So here's John worshiping in the Spirit. Here's John seeking the Lord. Just just picture this tiny little rock out in the middle of the Aegean Sea. It's five miles by ten miles. It's It's a forgettable little piece of land. If you go on Holy Land tours, they just skip it today because they say there's nothing to see on Patmos. But John sees everything on Patmos. He's in the spirit, which I take to be this prophetic spirit that comes upon him in power, and he's authoring scripture by this vision. But more importantly, he's worshiping the Lord exactly the way Jesus said the Father is seeking. Remember in John 4, Jesus talks to the woman at the well and he says, it's the Father speaking, seeking those who will worship me in spirit and truth. Because God is the Spirit and he wants to be worshipped in the Spirit. So, so blind people go to this little island of Patmos and they don't see anything. There's nothing there. And yet if you look with me, you see this sad old man face down toward the ground, 
Nobody around him. All by himself. All his friends are dead. He's in exile. He has barely enough to eat, barely enough to wear, barely enough to to sustain life. And God, on a Sunday, while he's keeping faithful his worship on the Lord's Day, seeking God in worship in the Spirit, comes and meets him with this prophetic vision, lifts his heart, increases his assurance, blesses his life with this wonderful vision that he is told in the vision to write down, and he writes it down, and it speeds on by, surely by messenger, back to the coastland, to the churches that are listed, Ephesus and Smyrna and all the seven. But beyond them, it's recorded as scripture so that we can read it right now and say, this church is nothing. My life is nothing. I'm, I'm forgotten by people. I'm rejected by people. I have people saying unkind things and untrue things about me. I have the world opposing me. I have people I used to trust that are saying unkind and unholy things that I can't follow anymore. I'm alone in this world. Do you ever feel that way as a believer? Do you ever feel alone even in your own household or alone in your own relationships or alone online or alone in your community or at work? Alone at school? Here's John seeing nothing on his little rock yet seeing everything. When people come to the landing, there's nothing here to see. None of us are worth looking at. There's nothing fancy about us. But do you see with the eyes of your heart a vision of the risen and glorious Christ? Look at this vision, how Christ reveals his equality with God. This is what we're to see. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. We know what those lampstands are. They're churches. The last verse of our passage will tell us that. Lampstands because churches are to lift the light of their witness up. And to burn with fuel that comes from another and fire that comes from another. We're not self-replenishing in our fire and in our fuel. We're empty. We're just a vessel. You have to pour the oil in, Lord, and you have to light it. So that when we baptize and when we preach and when we do acts of kindness and when we share the Lord's Supper, and when we sing praises, these are not just human interchanges. These are supernatural bright witnesses of the fire of your glory and love upon us so that others might see and have their cataracts removed and their enfogged lives cleared away so that they might come to Christ and be saved. This is a glorious picture of seven golden lampstands, but the lampstands We're not making the sound of the voice John heard. Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Not way above the lampstands. Not at a distance. Not far away. Not condemning. Not judging. Walking among the lampstands. 
I believe with all my heart that Christ is here in this room by his Holy Spirit. And he's moving, touching with his right hand, the hand of his blessing and strength, shoulders. And in touching, we are undone and left to the emptiness of our own lack. We bring nothing to him except our need. And yet at that same time, he says, fear not. And fear flees. It has to obey him. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. That's a reference way back to the book of Daniel, isn't it? The book of Daniel is often referred to here in the book of Revelation. It's this glorious picture of God who is called one like the Son of Man in Daniel's prophecy. And in Daniel's prophecy there, one like the Son of Man is given powerful uh, prophetic power. And he says, there's going to be a day, there's latter day, it's coming. All these glorious things where the kingdom of God will come and all the other kingdoms of the earth will be subdued by it. That's coming, that's coming, not now, but later. Now here in Revelation 1, this is the later. This is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is here not just referring to God the Father in His glory, but it's referring to God the Son, making God the Son and God the Father equal with each other. It says He's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around His chest. That's the image of priesthood. That's built right out of the book of of Exodus. That's a picture of the priesthood, and he is, in fact, not just one of many priests, but the great high priest because of the golden sash, not just around his waist, but across his chest. This is Christ saying, Aaron was a priest, and and he died. Now I am the great high priest, and I live and ever live to make intercession for the saints. I made intercession by the blood of my cross. I am the great high priest who offered the sacrifice of the lamb, and I also am the lamb which I myself sacrificed. That's what's signaled by the robe and the golden sash across his chest. Everything in this picture is meant to make us say, okay, Daniel's prophecy is coming to pass in the first century when when Christ came and was born, lived a righteous life, died and rose again, and here he is, a great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for the people of God. And then it says, the hairs of his head were white like wool. What do you think that means? White like wool or white like snow meant complete, perfect wisdom and eternity. Christ is here pictured the way Daniel 7 pictures Yahweh as having white hair, signifying he's the ancient of days, the one who was, who is, and who is to come, the God who is eternity above time. Now, Christ is pictured as the one with white hair. This is not a picture of what you're going to see when you meet Jesus, when you die. It's a way of saying this is who he is. This isn't just a photograph of Jesus. This is a truthograph of Jesus. He's the risen Christ with white hair just like his father. Both are eternal and above time. Both can say they are the ever-existing one who was, who is, and who is to come. And what confidence and assurance that gives the reader to say, All persons, including myself, 
are underneath and submitted to his eternal glory and power. He's the great high priest who makes intercession for sin. He's the eternal one. He just bends the mind, doesn't it? He's the high priest, but he offered himself as the lamb, as the sacrifice. The priest offered himself to God the Father, with whom he bears all the same characteristics. He's eternal with white hair. Bends the mind. His eyes were like flames of fire. There's nothing that can happen to you ever in secret that Christ doesn't see. Nothing's ever happened to me or shall ever happen to you or me that his eyes of fire don't fully see. Satan cannot see as Christ sees. The, devil, the demons can't see as Christ sees. No human being can see as Christ sees. He has flames of fire for eyes. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Burnished bronze signals a warrior. Now, now a, an all-seeing warrior. Burnished bronze refined in a furnace means purity. His, his war is a holy war. He comes in holiness and he fights for the holiness that everyone must have would they to see the Lord. A holiness he has purchased and he's achieving in his people according to his own grace and power. It's at work in every one of his believers, whether they feel it or not. His voice was like the roar of many waters. So this is the power of God's infinite, overwhelming presence. It's like Niagara Falls or like the roar of a tsunami that comes over a coastland. God's infinite power and glory are thunderous in their roar. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And we know from verse 19 and 20 that those seven stars are seven angels. Seven stars signaling what he takes with his right hand and what he sends out as seven stars are those that bear the very light of his face. We'll see in a moment. They are the stars similar to the sunlight of his face. And he sends those seven stars as seven angels to churches. Go to each of the seven. But angels, I send you to each of the churches around the face of the earth and throughout time. And when you go, convey the very light, starlight, which is the similar and identical light of the sunlight of my face, which is my mercy and my grace. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His judgment is judged by his powerful word. Everything he says comes to pass. Nothing can stop the judgment of God when he speaks. It's sharp and double-edged, as the writer of Hebrews says, and it can cut bone and marrow. He doesn't need other weapons, for out of his mouth he speaks, and his word will judge. Finally, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You could see the glory of God in his face, but all the more the way his glory is maximized and fully magnified is in his grace and his mercy. His everlasting love is on display in the sunlight brightness from his face. So when he sends the very same thing in angelic messengers in the form of stars, it is to send to the churches listed here in the rest of Revelation as well as all the churches around the world the shining light of his face. 
Daniel 9, again, is behind these images. Now therefore, Daniel writes in 9.17, O you, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Christ's shining face here is the infinite, powerful, fierce, good, kind, merciful love of God that overwhelms us. It sees into us and it overwhelms us so that you can surely understand when John sees this vision, weary, tired, sad, alone, Apostle John, he falls on his face, though dead. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's a common response. I don't deserve this kind of love. I don't deserve to be known fully. Christ who can look into my life and he knows my every thought. He knows my every desire. He knows my every meditation. He knows my every struggle. He knows everything about me. He's got those eyes of flaming fire through which he looks deep into me and still his face shines upon me. Still his face shines upon me. He still sends gospel preaching, good news supplying, law-giving angels to churches in the same starlight that shines from his own face communicating his mercy and grace to the churches. John has not only weakness in his legs and body, but he falls as though dead. There's something wonderful about a person who sees the glory of Christ so powerfully that they say, there's no way that I could possibly ever deserve this kind of love. If you ever feel that, you're just where the Lord wants you to be. It's exactly the way we should be. And then look what Jesus does. In all his glory, white hair, eyes on fire, voice roaring, shoes gleaming, white robe, golden sash, stars in his right hand. He casts the stars as it were. And then he says the most common command in all the Bible, the one most repeated in Scripture by far, fear not. He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. And just like every command Jesus gives, what he says comes to pass. Fear flees, John. He gives three reasons why we ought to fear not in the presence of Christ. And fear not no matter what persecution comes. Fear not no matter what our struggles of assurance are. Fear not. Why? Because I'm the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. This is a reference to the way John the way God talks about himself in Isaiah 44, 6. The Lord says of himself, Yahweh, the king of Israel and his, and his redeemer, I am the first and the last. And now John says, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Why? Is he confusing scripture? No, he's saying this risen Christ is God as the Father is God, as the Spirit is God. 
Christ is the eternal one. He's above all things. And he has all power over time and eternity. He has the plan and outcome of revelation and of a time in history. And he knows it from the beginning and declares it the end from the beginning according to Isaiah 46. Third, or second reason he gives for fearing not. Verse 18, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. God the Father never said I died. This is God the Son. And he says, I'm the living one. I died. Stunning sentence, isn't it? I'm the living one and I died. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. This is the risen Christ preaching the gospel of himself to John and to us. He is the one who absorbed all the wrath of God for your sin and for mine. The sin that we committed, the good things we left undone, and all the many sins we've committed in heart and in mind and speech and in action. He died upon the cross to pay for fully our sin in the past, our sin in the present, and our sin in the future. Praise his name. And here he says, I died and now I am the living one. So therefore you do not need to fear me. I don't come in judgment. I bore all the judgment for you. Such that no longer is Hades, hell, or the judgment of death hanging over your head. That's the third reason we need not fear. Verse 18, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Heaven and hell are controlled by Christ. He has the keys. When he opens a door to heaven, no one can shut it. There are so many in our culture today trying to shut the doors of heaven, are they not? There are so many people lying about Christ and lying about the gospel and lying about the Bible and lying about Christ's church, his bride, trying to shut the door of heaven. Oh, you don't want to be a Christian. They're mentally unstable. I would very happily be called a fool for Christ. Heaven and hell are controlled by Christ and he's opened a door. Until the judgment comes or until death, there is a patient open door awaiting you and me. If you're not a believer, let the door of Christ's open love and welcome receive you. Come and trust him. Follow him. Give your life to him. Become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do so quickly while the world begins to twirl down its proverbial toilet. And the hope that we have is found in Christ and Christ alone to save us. Enter in. All three reasons. I am the ever-living one. I'm the first and the last. I died and rose again for your sins. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, verse 19, therefore, you see the second word in the sentence, it's the first word in Greek. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are yet to take place after this. Write all about the things that happen in your time, John, will happen in the next 2,000 years and until I come back, write these things down in order that you might see me for who I am and seeing me you might have tremendous and unshakable assurance even through the hardest difficult times. This is a glorious picture. Christ has shown himself, hasn't he, a prophet? He spoke his word to John and through John to us. He's shown himself our priest, wearing the golden sash and the long robe and proclaiming that he died for our sins and has risen again. And he's the king. He's got the burnished shoes that are pure and he's got the hair of white and the eyes of fire and the, the uh 
judgment sword coming out of his mouth and the angels doing his bidding in his right hand. He's our thundering prophet, our great high priest, and our kind and reigning king. That's why, John, you can be assured of the outcome of your salvation. That's how you know, John, that the seven churches will be preserved and held on to. You know how I knew this was a message about assurance? Do you know how I knew this is what the Lord wanted me to speak to you today? I was pondering and studying and thinking and asking, why did Jesus picture himself just like this? And I came across a commentary by a man named Jim Hamilton, and he showed me what I should have seen myself. You're going to say the same thing as soon as I say it. Every one of the qualities of Jesus' image here in John chapter or Revelation chapter 1 is repeated one by one as the foundation and assurance for everything the angels say to the seven churches. Every one of these visions is on display when the angels come speaking to the churches, all seven of them. You're going, well, duh. I should have seen it. Glad for the help to see it. What does it mean? It means when John is writing Revelation to these seven churches, he's not saying, this is what you got to do to earn the love of Christ. He's not saying, these are the works you have to add on to the work Jesus did. No, no, no. He's saying all that Christ is, all that he has done, all that he has planned and all that he is doing is working itself out in who you are. It's who you are. Be who you are. You'll see that as we walk through Revelation 2 and 3. Be reading that in advance and be looking for the ways that this vision of Christ given to John in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, is unfolded in beautiful fashion through each of those seven churches. Is there anything to see here in this little church tucked way back in the woods in Proctor, Minnesota? Tiny little group of believers? Just an ocean of trees and scrub brush around us? Spiritual deadness around us? Thank God for other churches who preach Christ. We're just a little island. We're our own little Patmos. Would anybody come here? Would you be here and see Christ? Let me pray for us. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may you give to us at the landing the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Cause the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us and what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And you put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want to see 
your son, Jesus Christ, your son, Father God, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, my prophet, my priest, and my king. I want to see his glory in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Thank you for Revelation 1. Thank you for the promise that to the weak and to the frail, even to the guilty, you come, having wiped away their guilt by your cross work and bloodshedding, having risen to reign in power such that we need fear nothing of danger or judgment from you. By the Spirit, would you set your powerful right hand of blessing and power on every shoulder in this room and say with authority to each soul, fear not. And let fear and doubt flee. And let assurance and hope and love for you rise in their hearts. Thank you for the assurance that we have in you, Lord Jesus, given by the Father, applied by the Holy Spirit. Thanks for the privilege we have now to go live a life confident in you, able to confidently point to others and say, look to Christ. That's where your assurance comes from. Oh, give it to fathers to say to their children, husbands to their wives and wives to their husbands, children to their parents, classmates to one another, those online to each other, ministry partners to each other, elders and deacons and pastors and leaders to their flock, and churches like lampstands to a dying and in darkened world. Look to Christ. It's in his glorious, unspeakably precious name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond.